my marriage was falling apart as a result of all that shadow stuff. And I was keeping those problems at bay with money. And anyway, before I could untangle all that mess, I ended up earning my way into a, a federal prison sentence for drug charges, on drug smuggling charges. You know, my life for quite some years at that time had been kind of a mixed bag. I spent about half the year doing really good stuff, spending a lot of time in retreats and traveling with my teacher and studying and continuing that work. And then the other part of the year running around being this crazy person. And But when I got locked up, all that stopped. Uh, the craziness stopped. I hit that wall. My son was nine years old. I realized, you know, I had to face all the incredibly selfish decisions I've been making for so long, putting his life, his mother's life at risk. And now that he was going to grow up without a dad. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men This Way. My guest today is Dr. Fleet Mall. Dr. Mall is truly a wise man because he is a true elder in a world of too few true elders. Well, what really hooked me on his work was the fact that he spent 14 years in a federal prison on drug trafficking charges. He was actually convicted under the so-called Kingpin statute by the government in 1985 and sentenced to 30 years without parole when he was just 35 years of age. Now, I don't mean to say that's the only thing that hooked me on his work. What he has created with his life is extraordinary. And in our conversation today, Dr. Maul takes us into that experience, his experience of being imprisoned, and how it impacted and shaped him as a man, but also how it created a foundation for his life's work. Because he didn't just go to prison. In prison, he soon resolved to not let that be the end of his life. And with a pre-existing Buddhist practice as an orienting light, he set himself upon a path of profound service to humanity. In both deepening his own meditation practice and now teaching meditation and mindfulness to other prisoners as well, he would eventually go on to found the Prison Mindfulness Institute and the National Prison Hospice Association. And later, he also became the co-founder of other service organizations like the Engaged Mindfulness Institute, the Transforming Justice Initiative, the Rwanda Bearing Witness Retreat and Peace Initiative, and the Center for Contemplative End-of-Life Care at Naropa University. And he currently serves as the CEO and Director of Training, Research, and Development for the Prison Mindfulness Institute, the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, and the Engage Mindfulness Institute, as well as CEO and Senior New Trainer for Windhorse Seminars and Consulting. I mean, this guy is seriously a wisdom rock star, if I can just coin the weirdest term I've ever coined and stand behind it. And I do. Uh, I'm really impressed with uh, Dr. Maul's, uh, the arc of his journey in life. And the book uh, that I have of his is, uh, which we'll dive into a little bit today, is Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame fearlessly live your highest purpose and become an unstoppable force for good. I love it. Radical responsibility. Dr. Maul and I talk about his prison experience, what happened 
with his son, both during and after his prison experience. And we talk about the importance of emotional intelligence as a foundation for healthy relationships, as well as the need for men to gather with other men in doing essential personal growth work, in facing and integrating our shadows so that we don't sabotage ourselves and the world with harmful, immature behavior. Speaking of which, it's a little early to be announcing this, but Elevate 2022, a year-long coaching journey for men committed to thriving. Well, we're now opening up applications for consideration. We're limiting this to just 12 men, and we've already filled our first spot at the time of recording this, which is early September, and we haven't even announced it yet. So consider joining me for the adventure of a lifetime throughout all of 2022 and make 2022 extraordinary. And I mean extraordinary because this really is the most exciting experience I've yet created specifically for men. It includes personal coaching with me and also an intimate men's group experience with the other men going through this year alongside of you. And these men, which might include you, I am ultimately selecting. It will be a curated group of men that I myself would be excited to spend the year with because that's exactly what I'm doing, spending this entire year with you. We'll also meet in person for a five-day retreat in a beautiful nature location uh, next spring or summer. Through this experience, these men and I will become your brothers for life. You will be both challenged to go beyond your comfort zone and celebrated as you step more fully into offering your soul gifts to the world, whatever that looks like for you. And also the best part, I think, is you'll have on-demand video access throughout the entire year to me and your exclusive brotherhood. And if this intrigues you, the details are at brianreeves.com elevate. It's brian with a Y, reeves.com slash elevate. If you're wondering what this costs, I assure you, if you're listening to this on a computer or a smartphone, you can afford it or at least figure out how to. And you know, a question I often like to ask is is not whether can I afford something, but can I afford not to do something? I find that a far more helpful question for me personally. And look, this definitely isn't for everyone. Only 12 men will be invited into this adventure. So if you are a man ready to step deeper into your full and free expression as a man and fully give your greatest gifts to the world, to your loved ones, and live the vow you know your soul is waiting for you to make. Oh, I love those words by Dr. Francis Weller, who's a guest on an upcoming podcast. But if you are ready to live the vow you know your soul is waiting for you to make, then this is for you. Go to brianreeves.com. It's Brian with a Y, reeves.com slash elevate for details and to apply. Now, let's get back to my conversation with the wise Dr. Fleet Mall. Take a deep breath and stay present with us all the way through to the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Dr. Fleet Mall. Uh, it's an honor to have you here on Men This Way. Thank you so much for, for saying yes to this conversation, sir. My pleasure to be here, Brian. I am enthralled by your life journey as a whole. Uh, from uh, you're, 
I'm fairly new to your work, uh, just discovering you. And as I've, I've dove into your story and your experience, um, I'm, I'm profoundly moved by so much of what you've created and, and been involved with and, and the momentum that you've, you've put into the world through your work. But there's one story that really stands out in particular to me because um, I find in a world where we lack initiatory rites of passage, particularly as, as men, from, from boy to man, that there are those stories of where men are thrust into these dark nights of the soul, these initiatory rites of passage. That, that's not what we're calling them, um, but that's, I think that's one way we can see them. And, and your prison journey occurs as that for me personally. I don't know if it occurs for you in that light. But I, to help our, our listeners get to know you a bit more, I, I, would, I would love to hear more about your prison experience and specifically how that played a fundamental role in shaping you as a man. Would you be willing to take us into that a bit? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, it, well, it certainly was uh, an initiatory and transformational experience for me. I came of age in the 50s and 60s as a baby boomer and uh, kind of classic angry young man, uh, graduated from high school in 1968, one of the most tumultuous years in our country's history. And fell headlong into the counterculture, just as a kind of angry young man looking for something. And also, um, in my early childhood, I had experienced life as really magical and felt kind of really plugged into reality. And and that all kind of went away at some point, probably around the time of starting school. And it could have had to do with alcoholism. My family could have had to do with just going into school. But everything went from magic and feeling plugged into reality to just gray tones and feeling kind of disconnected and alienated. And I was always looking to reconnect and, and I wasn't finding that in, in the faith that I was raised in. And I wasn't finding that in the school system. And so where I began to find it in high school was, you know, drugs, sex and rock and roll and all the rest of it. But I'd always been a spiritual seeker as well. So that kind of kept me on this, you know, winding sort of twisted path. And then, uh, Graduated from high school, I went off to a big state university and just went headlong into the counterculture and the radical politics of the time and all the rest of it. But I also continued my explorations of a spiritual path. And I, I pretty much figured out I was a Buddhist uh, during my second year in, in high school. And I was trying to, you know, pursuing that interest, but I, I was raised in the Midwest. There wasn't a lot going on in terms of interest in Eastern spirituality and meditation and consciousness and things like that in my neighborhood back then. Um, so I was just kind of continuing my own search and, um, you know, eventually I, I did find my way into a very deep path and, uh, but I still had a lot of baggage with me. I'd end up living outside the country as an expat for quite a few years. I, I left and when, uh, Nixon was reelected in, I think in 1971 or 72 and, um, I, I just kind of couldn't handle being in the country anymore. And I had all this kind of versus I'm thinking and, you know, not very helpful kind of. And I was also just looking for something real. So I was traveling throughout Latin America. And, you know, eventually I did plug into some very real things. It was a lot of healing and a lot of magic. And uh, but I was also still carrying a lot of the baggage and the involvement with drugs. And and I still had this kind of us versus them thinking was justifying basically an outlaw lifestyle living outside the laws, you know, justifying that with all this us versus them stuff. And, you know, I, I kind of worked my way through that and found my way back into a deeper path with, uh, 
with my Buddhist training and also got a master's three, went to a very intense three-year clinical training program in psychology. Still had all this shadow stuff going on. My marriage was falling apart as a result of all that shadow stuff. And I was keeping those problems at bay with money. And anyway, before I could untangle all that mess, I ended up earning my way into a, a federal prison sentence on drug charges, on drug smuggling charges. You know, my life for quite some years at that time had been kind of a mixed bag. I spent about half the year doing really good stuff, spending a lot of time in retreats and traveling with my teacher and studying and continuing that work. And then the other part of the year running around being this crazy person. And But when I got locked up, all that stopped. Uh, the craziness stopped. I hit that wall. My son was nine years old. I realized, you know, I had to face all the incredibly selfish decisions I've been making for so long, putting his life, his mother's life at risk. And now that he was going to grow up without a dad. I was initially sentenced to 30 years with no parole. I was 35 years old. The paper said I'd be 65 years old before I had any chance of release. That's what it said the next day after my conviction. And uh, it took me a while before I actually got to the federal prison and figured out how the good time worked under the old law that I would actually serve 18 and a half years if I stayed out of trouble. I wasn't eligible for parole, which you become, you can go to the parole board after you've served a 30 year time when they used to have parole. Uh, I wasn't eligible for that, but you got a lot of good time if you stayed out of trouble. Uh, this is prior to 1987. All that's all that went away after 1987, both uh, parole and the good time. There's there's still a little bit. It's very small. So at any rate, I realized I'd serve 18 and a half. Still felt like forever. And then it took three years for my appeal to go through the courts. And on appeal, they they knocked off one count, which really should have got me a new trial. But that's just kind of the way they do it. They they charge you with. Uh, these confusing counts, and then they know they're just going to drop one on appeal. And so that anyway, gratefully reduced my sentence to 25. And at that point, I knew I'd serve 14 and a half if I stayed out of trouble. And I did manage to stay out of trouble. And, and that's what I served. Uh, still a very long time, as you can imagine. And uh, the place I was doing my time was the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, which is the maximum security federal prison hospital. And I arrived there in 1985 as the AIDS epidemic was going into full swing. And so this was a place of tremendous suffering. I mean, there were men there, the patients there came from all the high security, maximum security federal penitentiaries like Lewisburg and Lompoc and Atlanta and so forth. And uh, I was in the general population there just to help run the place and medium security. And I ended up uh, teaching school for 14 years. That was my day job, helping other inmates learn to read or, or earn their GED or study for correspondent college courses and learn English as well. And that was my day job. But the place, the minute I got there, I was just struck by the amount of suffering. And that was actually a blessing because it shook me out of the drama of my own situation. As you can imagine, I was pretty caught up in that drama. And I still, at that point, I thought I was serving, serving 30 years. Then my life as I'd known it was pretty much over and that I just really had torched my own life and what I'd done to my son. And you know, I just became radically dedicated to getting all the negativity out of my life and trying to do something with my time there. Uh, that would leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or even dad died in prison because I had no surety that I would survive my time at all. And the place where I was, you know, it was both a uh, uh, a medical hospital and a psychiatric hospital. And there were, I think there were about 600 medical patients, about 400 psychiatric patients, and about 300 inmates in the, what they call the general population of work cadre like myself. And so there were men there who were dying of cancer and liver disease, all the Ill illnesses you can imagine, but also especially AIDS. 
And uh, and then there were, you know, men coming in and out of the, the psychiatric area all the time doing the Helidol or Thorazine two-step and, you know, being over-medicated. And it's just, it was when I, I remember the first day there walking around the halls that connected all the buildings in this huge complex. And I thought I was landed in some kind of Bellini movie or something. It was, it was really intense. But that shook me out of the drama of my own um, situation. And with the influence of my spiritual teacher, the Tibetan master Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche, who, as far as I could tell, never did anything but serve humanity 24-7. And uh, so that, you know, really even the inspiration for my family, despite his problems, a good family from the Midwest, I just became really inspired to show up there and help, really to make this my community and, and figure out how could, I, how could I be of use there. You know, for the next 14 years, I lived this kind of monastic, very disciplined life, but also a life of service. So, uh, you know, my day job teaching school, I helped start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world. I led a, so I spent most of my meal breaks and free time up in the hospital attending the men who were dying of AIDS and other illnesses. Um, Got very involved in 12-step work to deal with my own substance abuse issues and alcohol issues. Uh, And I led a a twice-weekly meditation group in a prison chapel. You know, but then uh, we had to be back on our unit at nine o'clock every night. And, uh, you know, that was locked down. And so then I spent two or three hours studying and then I spent two or three hours practicing meditation. I get up in the morning and practice for a couple of hours. I was practicing very intensely and sleeping only four or five hours a night. So leaving this kind of very disciplined monastic yogic lifestyle, but at the same time, very engaged in that community and living a life of service. And and uh, I was a very transformational experience. And it was it was very, you know, I managed through deep practice to to be able to serve most of my time within a kind of an abiding positivity and sense of cheerfulness. But the world I was in was just a world full of tremendous bitterness and anger, um, conflict, racism. Um, and, you know, most prisoners, because when you get arrested, you're just assaulted with this kind of shaming and demonization. So most prisoners, uh, most people get involved in the criminal justice system. They just armor up with their own victim story, bitterness, anger, just to, to survive psychically in a sense, right? Psychologically, because you're just being buried under this mountain of demonization and guilt and shame and all of society projecting all of its shadow on, onto you and, and to your fellow prisoners. And so I, it's very understandable why prisoners end up that way, but I didn't want to end up, I didn't want to come out of prison broken and bitter and angry. I didn't want to live that way in prison. I'd had enough training, enough spiritual training, enough psychological training. No, that's not who I wanted to be. And I knew I'd have to work really hard at not becoming that person. And that's really where the radical responsibility model came from that, uh, the name of my book, I I realized that I needed to embrace like 200% ownership for having got myself into that situation and what I was going to do with it, whether I'd survive and and what, whatever kind of life I could create for myself beyond prison if I was lucky enough to survive. And so that's kind of where that was birthed. And, and it did become, you know, I, I've been interviewed many, many times about even while I was in prison, I was interviewed in, in um, Fresh Air, some other programs and People have often asked me, well, it seemed like the prison environment worked for you. It's been very transformative, you know, and it is true. Uh, It did work for me. I came in with a lot of resources and assets and, uh, you know, psychologically and spiritually. But most people come out of prison worse. Uh, Most people come out of prison a lot worse. And it's a very demeaning environment. Uh, On a good day, you might only have a half dozen extremely demeaning encounters with either your fellow prisoners or or the, the correctional officers. That's on a good day, right? It's an incredibly dehumanizing, negative, angry, noisy, chaotic environment. Uh, but yet, you know, through my practice, I was able to turn this into my monastery, my ashram time, and also to really 
live with a, a kind of an abiding positivity and cheerfulness, even in that very negative environment. So it, w- it was a very powerful rite of passage and period of deep transformation for me, for which I'm actually very grateful. I, I really regret the impact it had on my family and my son and everyone else, and also the impact my involvement with drugs had on so many people. I regret all that very deeply. That time of my life today, I'm actually grateful for because it really, it, it is who I am today, the, the results of that experience. Yeah, and I'm struck by the way you tell the story in uh, the book that I have of yours, Radical Responsibility. Um, you, you talk about even the day of your sentencing when you heard 30 years from the judge that even the U.S. Marshals, you uh, had known them uh, somehow to to make fun of, of new prisoners who had – who would cry when they get their sentence. And so you were determined not to let them see you cry. And just that day one from, from that moment. And I'm, I'm, so I'm struck by that. And what I'm hearing is you really went in though, oh, despite the devastation that caused, you went in resourced with tools and a, a meditation lineage to, to work with and practice that uh, I mean, obviously, so few people have that otherwise go into a, today's prison system. I'm really curious about your son. I know that that was something because you wrote about it and you've just spoken to it, that your son, you're 35, your son is nine. He's now losing his father. And how did you reconcile with him during or, or after your prison experience yeah well of course he was nine at the time and i'm sure he didn't was very challenging for him to make sense of what was happening at all because the the authorities were putting a lot of pressure on my wife and and she was from peru we decided it was best that she just returned to peru so while i was still in county jail and going through trial and sentencing uh they came to see me and then we got him on a plane they, they went back to peru and and so we, we, I was already separated from my wife at that time. We, we'd been separated for quite quite some time already. But uh, so my, she still lives down there. And and uh, but my my son ended up living living in Peru during uh, during the time I was in prison. And so I stayed in touch with him as best I could, corresponding. And of course, kids aren't very good at writing letters, right? So, but I kept writing letters. And my family, very gratefully, my my family um, was uh, from St. Louis and. Uh, not that far from where I was in prison, a couple hours drive. So they brought Robert up about every other year. They brought him up during uh, Christmas time, and uh, which was summer vacation for him. And uh, he would stay with my my brother, my older brother in St. Louis, and he had a son the same age and a couple other sons. So my son would hang out with them and even go to school with them sometimes a little bit, but they'd bring him down to see me on weekends. So I'd get to have uh, I, I got to see him about every other year. And one year, some folks in my uh, spiritual community actually paid to bring him up and had him do a program for youth up in Nova Scotia and, and then sent him down to see me as well. So I got to see him about every other year. And then eventually um, he decided to to move up here while I was still in and uh, tried living out in Colorado where where he was born and where I'd been living uh, before prison for a while and things were falling apart. And then he actually came to live in the town where I was and was actually staying with my A sponsor for a while and, and things weren't working out. And then, uh, you know, he, he was really struggling. Yeah, obviously he was angry. He was, he was, he was really struggling. And, you know, eventually, eventually I, I did get out and, uh, and uh, uh, he was then in Colorado. And, and so we really worked on our relationship and we had our ups and downs. Um, 
and uh, challenges. And he was very creative and uh, worked in the food service industry most of his life. He had an uncle down in Peru that had restaurants. And so he got involved in that in high school. And he was, but he was very creative and was very artistic. He, he tried to start a clothing line at one time, worked really hard on that, but didn't quite break through. But he, he worked really hard, but he would get it together. And then his life would kind of fall apart one way or another. And, you know, and I kind of be there to pick up the pieces. And so that, that was a bit of struggle and created tension between us over the years. And it was up and down. And during one of those down periods, he was down in Peru and actually ended, was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got beaten nearly to death uh, right on the plaza, the main plaza in Cusco, a big tourist area. And he was in some, some, some kind of club at night and just walked in on some, I don't know what it is, but, but he was left for dead out in the street. And fortunately, his friends found him and got him into a, I, initially, I think, so the police or something just took him to uh, a really kind of terrible hospital. He was laying there. He probably would have died, but his friends kept searching for him, found him. And they got into a private clinic and, and they got a hold of me. And I got down there the next day. And and then his mother came in from the Sacred Valley. They got a hold of her. She came in and we were at his bedside for 10 days. He was in a coma and uh, eventually, thank goodness, came out of that. But he came out of that with a frontal frontal lobe head injury. And he was kind of completely out of control and basically kind of crazy very inappropriate and out of control and crazy and freaking out the staff and everybody. And, and so it was a lot to manage. And eventually uh, it's kind of a long story, but eventually I got him out of Peru and back up to the States and got in uh, a renowned hospital. It was supposed to be helpful. They weren't helpful at all. I had to get him out of there. It was just, you know, and I got him to a friend of mine's ashram who, where he knew the, the, my close, very close friend of, he knew them and they're willing to have him there, but then they weren't sure they could handle him because he was really out of control at some point, he finally began to settle down. And I think all the blood finally reabsorbed in his brain. The circuits hooked back up and he was just himself again. Uh, but that took about eight months. And it was during that time that my partner at the time, my um, we never quite got married, but we may as well have been married, uh, named Denise was dying and she was in hospice. So it was a crazy time of my life. And uh, but Robert did recover. Our relationship been kind of like that. He's been back and forth to Peru over the years. And and uh, came back and got his degree in culinary arts uh, at one point where I was living in Providence, Rhode Island at the time. And then was living near me here in Massachusetts for a while and moved back about two years ago. Well, more than two years ago now and decided it would be less stressful to live down there because unfortunately, as a result of a head injury, he was fine for quite a while. And then I think in around 2016, the head injury was in 2008, around 2015, maybe he started having seizures due to the scar tissue in his frontal lobes. And he had to go on uh, epilepsy medication, anti-seizure medication, which he didn't like. And so that was really a struggle. And, and, and the food service business, he, he's always worked in really high-end restaurants. And he got to the point where he was usually an executive chef or, or a general manager and very high-stress jobs. And, high stress. and um, you know, he would still have seizures, even on the medication sometimes. He's too stressed out and he couldn't sleep. And so he was thinking he would do better back in Peru. He thought it just would be less stressful down there. And, and uh, so he moved back down there and he was down there. And then the pand pandemic hit. So he was kind of in lockdown living there in a place uh, we had bought many years ago and where he built a home for his mother and he had built another house for himself in this little compound. And so he was living there, but not able to do much because of the pandemic, very isolated. And, and, uh, but we stayed in very close touch. We were very close. We had our issues, but we were very close and very loving relationship and, and uh, but very tragically and sadly, uh, we're coming up on the anniversary last September. His mom went to look for him one morning because she hadn't heard from him. It was around 9 30, 10 a.m. And she found him in his bed and he was he was 
already gone. She went, she got me on the phone right away. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And it became quickly apparent that he had, he had died. And we don't know what happened. He often woke up early in the morning with seizures. And you usually don't die of a seizure, but it can trigger a respiratory event or a heart attack. And we don't know if it was COVID-19 related. I don't think so. But the authorities insisted on having the body uh, buried the very next day because of the pandemic. And um, so all that's happening down in Peru while I'm up here. And, you know, at the time I felt very connected to all the people losing their loved ones in, in this terrible situation of the pandemic where people are dying in hospitals and they can't have their loved ones there and their loved ones can't even receive the body. And, you know, so it was kind of my situation with Robert dying down there. So it's been, it's been a tough period. We're coming up on the anniversary, September 14th of his passing. Man, I'm so sorry. That's heartbreaking. Uh, but thank you for, for bringing us into your journey with him through the years. And you know, I, I think this is a, a segue. Let's say, I want to segue into radical responsibility and because of what I'm, what I'm so present to and what you're sharing is, is life, we do things to ourselves and life does things to us that just create all kinds of chaos and, and pain and, and suffering and, and, and I suppose well, just all kinds of things happen. And in your book, Radical Responsibility, I love that you begin with uh, emotional intelligence as a foundation for that journey. Uh, as a coach, I've been working with couples, and I'm, I'm focusing more on men these days in particular. And and when we do men's circles, we typically start with this self-examination of our emotional and feeling states, something that men tend to not be very practiced in. Would you unfold for us a bit. What is emotional intelligence and and why is it so fundamental or foundational for this, for our journey to, uh, let's just say, living well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is fundamental to life. You know, um, growing up and going through school, we get a lot of great education, but we don't we're not taught much about how to manage this most complex system in the known universe, the human body, brain and nervous system as well as all of its emotional landscape. And we don't learn much about how to communicate with others either, you know, in terms of finding ways to get our needs met together in mutually beneficial ways. So emotional intelligence training has a lot to do with all that. Unfortunately, they are bringing uh, that into school systems these days. They call it social emotional learning. Uh, I use Goldman's four quadrants model a lot, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, or and then uh, relationship management or effective relationship skills and so forth. You know, I think it's really foundational to our human development, and it integrates very well with mindfulness. So, I mean, it's a lot of the work I do, I call it mindfulness-based emotional intelligence. And the first three chapters of the book, uh, in order to kind of create a foundation for what is really challenging work, to really, to, you know, face ourselves very directly and take ownership for our, com complete ownership for our experience and what we're going to do with it and, you know, where we're going to be tomorrow and the next day to, you know, to you know, let go of any notion of making excuses or blaming that on anything anymore. I mean, we can do that in a context of tremendous self-compassion for ourselves, but at the same time, stepping in that level of ownership requires a lot of self-compassion, a lot of courage, and a lot of resilience. So for me, the first three chapters of the book are very foundational. The first one is really about connecting with our own innate wholeness and goodness, which I think is the, the ultimate deep reservoir of our resilience, is having an undeniable spiritual 
contact with the depth of our being where we realize we're not broken, despite all the messages we've received our whole life that we're not enough or that we're missing something or, you know, that we're broken and we need fixing that we realize it's not true. And uh, yeah, on the surface, we have all our stuff to deal. And, you know, part of life is growing and thriving and changing and evolving. But, but at the core, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with us. In fact, that core is innate wisdom and innate wholeness and innate goodness. So that's really important. And then, and then having a mindfulness practice to give us, you know, some self-reflective capacity to be able to actually witness our experience and step back from our experience rather than just being lost in it. And then re-engage, re-land in our experience, but consciously, you know, with awareness. And in that frame, you know, then we can actually develop emotional intelligence because we have our emotional landscape. When we're no longer in denial of it, we just start becoming wiser emotionally. We naturally become, I mean, there's lots of emotional intelligence trainings and different things you can do specifically, but just by being more embodied and more aware and open to our emotional life and our emotional landscape, we're just naturally going to learn and we're going to become more emotionally literate, right? And the more embodied we are, the greater capacity. We have noticed from current neuroscience that the, the more awake we are to the inner field of sensate experience with what's called interoception, interoceptive awareness, the body's capacity to feel itself from the inside out, you know, and, and being awake to that whole dimension allows us to actually live in the body, be more embodied. And, and we know that that is directly connected to uh, enhancing our capacity for emotion regulation, self-regulation altogether. So really our wisdom is in the body and that's where we experience our emotions, our emotional energy we experience in the body. You know, it's hard to say what emotions really are. They've never been actually scientifically defined, but it's some, you know, we all know what, we all know what it feels like to feel angry or sad or happy or joyful and so forth. There's, it's some combination of, of thoughts and intense thoughts and, and embodied or, or physical sensate experiences, right? But we experience emotion in the body. So it, it's really the work of reclaiming our body and reclaiming our hearts. You know, with our amazing cognitive abilities as human beings, we've been we've become divorced from the body, the heart, and the earth, really. And and you know, that's we do lots of amazing things, but there's been all this collateral damage because the you know the head is serving itself in a sense instead of serving the heart and the earth and the body. And so it's really about reconnecting with the body. And and the more the more we can be in our body with awareness, we are naturally going to become more emotional intelligent. And then from that place, we're also more open to the world around us. and We're much more aware of and conscious of the world around us. So we start understanding other people and what they're needing and feeling. And it's very interesting, the very same neural pathways that are involved in deep embodiment or enhanced introceptive awareness are also involved in our capacity to create connection with others, to create intimacy and connection with others, to bring our social kind of social safety networks online and communicate safety. So you know, we can, people approach, we approach, we're able to create connection and, and that sense of openness and vulnerability. It's all tied in with the same work of becoming more embodied and more in touch with our own emotional landscape. Yeah. What, what I'm, what I'm noticing is, is in, in the context of the world we're living in today with this, with this pandemic, with the vaccine questions, the anti-vaccine folks, all of the the world is swirling with with this chaos of the mind going on. It's hard to tell, you know, it's like we're living in the era of alternate facts. And like that's normalized now. And and I and I noticed for myself, and I've had some debates that ultimately, in a sense, were fruitless in terms of finding a, a firm conclusions we could rest on, <laughs> science-based or otherwise, with friends. I've noticed that. 
I can either stay in this crazy place of, no, it's this way or it's that way or you're wrong and I'm right or this is how or, you know, this is what we need to do. That's what we... And I just get crazy there and I get upset and angry and I get I get all spun up. What I personally am using this experience to, to serve is to help me come back into my body to ultimately realize, okay, well, there's nothing I can know absolutely. And though, okay, well, I can breathe and I can feel what's happening in this body. I can, I mean, you said, you said we're so disconnected from the body, from the land. I mean, look at what's happening to the earth. Let's throw in on top of a pandemic. The earth is on fire. I live in California, you know, mm-hmm. fire. Uh, Europe is on fire. The Siberia earth. Anyway, it's like the earth is, the earth doesn't lie. The earth doesn't make up stories. We may make them up for the earth, but so I'm anyway, I'm, I'm really touched and moved by this. And I, I see in this a key to our reconnecting with ourselves and each other through the body, through a communication. You know, I, what I love about the, the emotional intelligence model, the four quadrant model is it begins with self, but it doesn't end there. It then moves on to other, the relational dance with other. And I think in this hyper-individualistic mindset that our culture is living in now, or at least certainly a lot of the culture, there's, there's like not a lot of relational concern for other going on right now. Even in the people who would say, I am for the community. There's a lot of fuck you in that I'm for the community. Fuck you to those who are not for the community. So it's, it's how do we challenge this narrative and, and bring back then concern for other, for self and other into our awareness through this, you know, emotional intelligence. Like how does this serve us to, to move forward without destroying each other and ourselves? Yeah, I think the answer really is reclaiming the body and allowing ourselves to feel, you know, a lot of, you could, one lens to which you could look at all of our complex social problems uh, today is, has to do with our unwillingness to feel our unwillingness to feel and all, all our attempts to escape feeling. I mean, we've had the worst opioid crisis in history. I don't know where it stands today because the pandemic has overshadowed everything else, but I'm sure it hasn't gone away. And, you know, that's really about people being unwilling to feel, not wanting to feel. And we've all been inculturated to not feel, just pop a pill, don't feel, right? And, and, and you know, we have this huge, massive world of entertainment, which is about distracting yourself so you don't have to feel, Right. And, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, actually, around the whole debate around the vaccines and the pandemic and all the rest of it. And, you know, with some really reasonable people, some even, some, you know, some podcasters and thought leaders that I respect. But the conversations are also disembodied. You know, they're trying to outfact each other or outreason each other. Or maybe someone's really unreasonable. The other person trying to be reasonable. But but really, there's no body in it. There's no heart. There's no feeling. Right. One of the spiritual traditions I've been involved in a long time, uh, along with my Tibetan Buddhist lineage, is is my Zen lineage. And I've been part of the Zen Peacemakers movement for a long time. And we do all our work around something called the three tenets, which are not knowing, which we call letting go of fixed ideas about ourselves, others in the world, like being willing to to step into open mind, beginner's mind. And then uh, bearing witness, which means not running away, willing to turn towards uh, and willing to experience and actually be touched by both the joy and the suffering of life. And then the third has been called healing. It's been called compassionate action. Towards the end of his life, my Zen teacher just said it was the actions that arise out of bearing witness from a place of not knowing. But it's, it's, they're, they're wisdom-based actions because they're not coming out of any preconceived notions. Uh, it's just the willingness to let go of all of our stuff, our opinions, and actually 
you know, in an unprotected way, experience life without the protection of our reference points and our knowing, reality connects with our innate goodness and natural wisdom arises and wisdom-based actions can arise that way. And so much of what we see in the world today, even all the, you know, the wave of the social justice movement, right? The current form of social justice, which I've been involved in social justice my entire adult life, and but I'm not very aligned with the current movement because it has nothing to do with not knowing. It's all about knowing. And even for the people that are like you were saying, they're shouting all about inclusivity and love and, and community, except for the people that disagree with them. They want to annihilate the people that disagree with them. You know, you have the whole cancel culture and all the rest of it. So it's it's all about knowing and it's all a warfare of words and thoughts and ideas. And it, and it, and it doesn't leave anywhere, lead anywhere, but further degradation of our social cohes- cohesiveness, right? The only, the only way we're going to come together as a society, either at the you know local level or regional or even the global level, is by being willing to be in our bodies and in our hearts and to feel and to feel each other's pain, to be willing to feel our own pain and feel the other's pain. Uh, it's really the only way forward. Uh, you know, our minds are very useful things, incredibly creative thing, but alone, untethered from the heart, the body, and the earth, they can be a bit dangerous. Yeah, I, I'm in a, a brotherhood of 13 men, and we're, we have a, a variety of, you know, we're kind of on all spectrums in these 13 men. We have, you know, black men, white men, uh, Asian men, and we're across the spectrum on this whole conversation of vaccines in, in particular. And, and we've, we've had some, you know, sort of intense moments. What, what I love about this group is we do, we're learning to do, we do conflict really well because we maintain respect in our disagreements. And, you know, to your point, what I believe is I'm committed to these men, to, to being in this brotherhood. Like this is a tribe I'm not leaving despite our differences. And what I've found, and this even in the last few days, the only way that we can really find our way through these, these, these conflicts is by coming back into our bodies and saying, you know, I, this is what I felt. This is what I'm feeling. I feel scared. I feel alone. I feel hurt. I feel really coming back in and narrating the, the embodied experience and witnessing the other uh, you know, feeling witnessed in that by each other and, and, you know, dropping sort of the need to be right over the details. Cause we're, that's, that's not happening. That's, it's not happening. We're not getting there. We're not coming to agreement on the details, but when we're able to see each other's humanity and by humanity, I just mean like, you know, what's really happening in the moment to us, what we're, oh, you know, and the love that we have for each other and the, and the, it's, you know, we've, we've used this language like I'm, I'm loyal to your heart, not your ideas necessarily, but to your, to your humanity, to your heart. That gets us through. That helps us find our way in a, in a really beautiful and, and a way that even deepens our, our trust with each other, ironically, despite, you know, the ideas floating around. Mm-hmm. What, say, what say you? What does that bring up for you? Well, deep work and really important work and um... – you know, during my years in prison, I did a lot of group work and um, did a lot of really deep work with men in prison. My work since being out of prison, I've been out for about 22 years now, has been, it has been male focused. It's just been kind of everyone. Uh, I mean, I still do a lot of prison work and that's, I mostly work in men's prisons, so that's a bit male focused. But I mean, in terms of the other work I do in the world, my teaching work, and uh, I work with everyone. And But interestingly, as, as you were talking, I was reflecting on 
you know, I, I do a lot in the, you know, in the world of mindfulness and spirituality and personal growth, personal evolution and that whole world. And that field of interest, audience and marketplace, if you will, is primarily women. And everybody knows that. And, it, and it's basically, it's, it's largely, it's probably 75 to 80% women between 40 and 60. Right? So where are the men? I mean, it's very small. There's, there's some, I just saw some data yesterday, some of the programs and some different things kind of in that space of people wanting to work on themselves and this whole thing. It's like 90% women in some, in many, many areas, right? So where are the men? What are they doing, right? Well, you know, men are caught up in that kind of male version of trying to get ahead, right? Or whatever, you know, men, you know, a lot of men are more attracted to, I guess, sports and cars and what have you, big trucks. Making, making but, money. Um, and- but there is a, a growing men's movement. And that's a wonderful thing. And there are different forms of it. I've been involved in the Mankind Project a little bit, which I'm very grateful for, which offers men a, a, a rite of passage and an initiatory process. And I think there, I think there needs to, uh, there needs to be a lot, a lot more of that. That they, even in business terms, really, you know, I have the whole nonprofit side of my life, which is all about the prison work, and and we're we're bringing mindfulness-based emotional intelligence programs to at-risk incarcerated returning youth and adults. We have a program developed by my uh, uh, colleague, who I kind of co-direct the organization with, uh, Vita Pyre, is called the Path of Freedom, which is a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum. But then today we're also working with, I work a lot with police, with correctional officers, probation and parole. I worked with the courts, the U.S. Border Patrol. That, that's a, personally, that's a big part of my work today is working with first responders and, and uh, public safety professionals. In fact, we're putting out a big summit in October called the Global First Responder Resilience Summit. And there I'm working with a lot of men, although that field is, there's many more women working in that field. Many more women working in that field. But anyway, that's all kind of nonprofit side. I'm on the for-profit side. You know, I have my book and I, I've always done live seminars and, and now I do a lot of online seminars and I have online courses and doing all these summits, right? And we're really trying to figure out how can we get to the male audience? How can we find men? How can we get men interested in personal evolution and personal growth? And it's wonderful that all the women are interested, in it, but we, we both thought we get the younger younger demographic and also how do we get the men of any age uh, more interested? And I think it's a challenge and I think it's, it's really important in terms of what's going on, you know, where we're going socially and culturally, politically, economically, and with the climate crisis and all of it. Somehow the call to men, you know, I think is, is, is really important. And there's been elements of that at different times. You know, there was the, the kind of men's movement that arose back in the 80s and 90s and you know, that had kind of one form. And then there's the kind of current form of the Mankind Project and other associated types of men's work. But, you know, and, you know, and then within Christian traditions, there's been some, you know, at times there were these stadium-sized events of calling men to live a life of purpose and live a life of integrity, right? Whether one agrees with that theology or not, there was still this call to men to show up and show up with integrity. And and I, I think there needs to be... Um, a lot more of that. And I, and I don't know what the answer is, but I'm very grateful today for my ability to, to do that, to do men's work as well as to doing, you know, just human work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this conversation right here, I mean, this podcast, Men This Way, was designed f- because I too look into the world and like, well, I mean, I've been wanting, I've been doing personal growth work for many, many, many years, but it was predominantly alongside women. And... I had no idea that I needed to gather with other men 
until I was in my, you know, until I was 39 or 40 years old, I had no idea how important it was for me to gather with other men and doing sort of this personal growth work, if you will, just use that term, but in a way that men need to do it really mm-hmm. and largely without women present. It's different. I'm, I'm excited to share your work with, with my audience. I, I'm also aware of time fleet. And so I, I want to just ask one more question and mm-hmm. then, and then I'll invite you to share with, with our listeners. And we have a lot of women listeners as well. Women write to me and say, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm binging your podcast and it's amazing. And I think that's great because I think also women lack exposure to, to thoughtful healthy conversations, men. healthy men, thoughtful conversations between, between evolving and growing men. So I'm super glad that you're here and that we're, we're and also you're an elder, you're an elder. You've cultivated wisdom in my estimation and in my view. And that also is a rare thing in today's. We have a lot of old people, but not a lot of true elders. And so, you know, I'm grateful for this conversation, this time with you to, to share you your wisdom, both for me and also for my, my, my audience. But the question I want to leave you with um, and ask you is, is and we'll wrap up with this, is what do you think is the biggest challenge facing men in particular today and what wisdom could you offer in the face of it? I think one of the, the biggest challenges probably for men of all ages and especially men, young men coming of age is that there are, there are very few models for healthy masculinity. Masculinity has been conflated with toxic masculinity and I think that's one of the downsides of the current social justice movement. You know, it's this kind of demonization of masculinity, you know, almost just associated masculinity means toxic masculinity. And, you know, very, very confusing. I mean, this is, you know, and you read the writings of various authors within the men's work and so forth since, since the 70s and 80s, men kind of lost trying to figure out, you know, having, having, having had it put in their face that, you know, we're responsible for all the ills of the world and, you know, and then trying to, okay, we don't want to do that. And, you know, and, and really many, many men reaching out to women for initiation, reaching out to women for wisdom and transformation. And that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's still just kind of, there, there's something lost. And, you know, the answer, you know, even though, you know, the deep work for all of us as human beings is, you know, even in Jungian terms is we, we develop the healthy masculine, and then we can move through the deep feminine into a really transformative wisdom and the same thing for women, you know, they have to establish healthy femininity and they can, they can embrace the masculine part of the being and move through into more. So we all have, we all have that, that work in that sense, but in, in a more relative beginning level, the, the answer to toxic masculinity is not for men to try to not be men or to try to be kind of feminized in some way. And so we, we have very few healthy examples right now. And we have, you know, you know, like it or not, uh, political leaders become examples and corporate leaders and people that are out there in the media and athletes, you know, we don't, we don't have that King principle, men and uh, men and women need that sovereign, that King and queen principle. I realize these are older traditional ideas, but part of that, and of course there's been many tyrants and, you know, I, I, I worked a lot with uh, the King warrior magician lover book, those Jungian archetypes and they talk about, you know, we, we, the King archetype gets confused into, into the tyrant. Right. But there is a healthy king archetype, which is that quality of blessing. And of course, there's the feminine version of all this as well. These are just different archetypal things in Jungian psychology and our systems. But we don't have that, that, that king archetype is not very available for men today. 
I mean, for some men, I think, you know, President Barack Obama manifested that a bit, just that he carried, he carried himself with dignity, he carried the office with dignity, he's not a perfect human being, and not even a perfect politician, but, but you know, he did carry it with some dignity, and I think he gave people some, somebody to look up to. I think, and when I was growing up, I think uh, President Kennedy gave people something to look up to, even though we all know today Kennedy had his shadow side, he had different things going on, but he had something, you know, he, he had something, and, and today it's very hard to find examples of that for me, it, you know, unfortunately, my father was my father was a really good man. And he was a World War Two veteran, and, a, you know, really solid provider for his family. Unfortunately, my family suffered with some alcoholism, not his it was my mother's. And he didn't know what to do with that. And, and he and I, you know, the whole generational disconnect, you know, we just, you know, we could never connect. So I really didn't get that transmission from him. Right. I, I wish I had. I mean, I, now I do. I feel in a sense that I that I do. And I kind of recaptured that from him. But where I really got it, that male transmission that we need, the blessing, the king energy blessing. I got it from my first spiritual teacher, Chogyam Tungpa Rinpoche, a great Tibetan meditation master who was very instrumental in bringing Buddhism and meditation to the West altogether. Very iconic figure from the 1970 forward here in the U.S. And uh, and, you know, I got that blessing from him you know, complete confirmation of the innate goodness and wholeness of my being, and that there was nothing fundamentally wrong with me, and that he was, you know, he had a, he had a very healthy king energy, very healthy warrior energy. I mean, he's considered, you know, to be one of the great realized beings of the 20th century, and I was very fortunate to receive that transmission from him. And it, it's very interesting the way karma works and just, you know, I, I got, he gave me that transmission very powerfully for 10 years. And then I find myself in a maximum security prison. Well, I landed in this hell realm, but I had the strength and the resilience to show up there and turn that into not only my monastery or ashram, but also to serve in that world and help really minister to people and, and minister to the suffering that was there. But it was because of that transmission he gave me, that strength I had. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges today that men don't have men to receive that blessing from. And we don't have the rites of passage. You know, that's the wonderful thing about, you know, men's work like the Mankind Project and other forms of it, that maybe it's not one particular man, but it's a group of men can come together and provide that that initiation and transmission for another man, right? So it can be done in more of a collective and group way. But men need that. And we need people to look up to. I mean, you know, tragically, what happened to Governor Cuomo, you know, here, here you got a, a guy who seems like a very solid guy, Italian-American guy. and even being talked about as a potential presidential candidate. And early on in the pandemic, people appreciated how solid he was, right? You know, and and people, you know, his news, his meetings with the press were were incredibly popular. And he just seemed to tell it straight, you know, and people just appreciated that solid, healthy male energy. But it turned out he's got all this shadow stuff going on, right? Because probably he never really got the confirmation. So he didn't get to do his shadow work. And he had all that shadow work going on and it completely destroyed his career, right? And so there's another image that some men might have looked towards and now, boom, you know, in, in shambles, right? Well, if we have a deep understanding, we could act next could actually inspire us to do our own shadow work because hopefully that's going to take him deep into his own shadow work. He's going to drop into ashes and, you know, that that next stage in the hero's journey, hopefully. But we need we need these examples of of of, of healthy men who can radiate healthy king energy, healthy warrior energy, healthy lover energy, not the Lothario uh, predatory lover energy and, you know, a healthy magician energy, not, not the kind of uh, the manipulative. So, 
the, um, some of the, the men that get the most attention out in the public sphere, unfortunately, because of the way our media works, are the examples of all the toxicity that former President Trump on what greater example of toxic masculinity could you possibly imagine? And I don't say that to beat up on him personally. He's a human being who has basic goodness. I wish him the best. I hope he finds his own way into transformation. But what he's manifesting right now is, you know, just a caricature of toxic masculinity. And so I think that's the really challenge that, that men need healthy men. And we're probably going to have to do it more at the collective level than hoping that some, you know, Savior is going to ride in on a white horse and be that paragon of, of healthy masculinity everybody can look up to. I mean, I hope we can get some leaders that show up like that, but probably have to be gathering and doing the kind of work they're doing uh, in men's circles and do that for each other and with each other. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, again, I'm aware of time, and so we'll we'll wrap up here. Uh, I feel like we're, I know, we are just dancing on the top of a very deep iceberg, Dr. Mall. So where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Sure. Well, uh, they can go to my basic website, fleetmall.com. That's a good place to start. Uh, all my online seminars and summits and so forth, they can find that at HeartMind Institute, which is heartmindinstitute.co, heartmindinstitute.co. If people are interested in prison work, uh, they can go to prisonmindfulness.org, the work we do with prisoners. Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety.org is the work we do with public safety professional and first responders. If people are interested in becoming a mindfulness teacher, engage mindfulness.org, engage mindfulness institute. If you even started my website, you'll eventually find your way to all that stuff, right? So to fleetmall.com. And if people want to check out Radical Responsibility, they can go to radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And there you can read all about the book and you can download a free chapter. And then if you want, you can order the book through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Indie Books or wherever you want to. Well, sir, thank you so much again for being here. It's a privilege and an honor to be able to have this conversation with you and record it for um, all antiquity, I think is how they say. (laughs) So thank you again so much for being here, Dr. Mull. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to Dr. Fleet Mall. You can find him at fleetmall.com. It's F-L-E-E-T-M-A-U-L-L.com. And you can also find his book at radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And of course, all these links and any resources Dr. Mall mentioned, you can find in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash menthiswaypodcast. And also remember, Elevate 2022, a year-long coaching experience for men committed to thriving in every domain of their lives, is now open for applications. Go to brianreeves.com elevate for details and to apply. Only 12 men will be invited on this journey with me. So do not delay. brianreeves.com elevate. And finally, if you were served by this and think others should hear it too, please share this episode or just write a review so that you too can lead more men this way. Your words matter. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.